Well, good afternoon. Oh, you can do better than that. Good afternoon. That's better. Um, we're going to start a new series today in the Old Testament book, or prophet book of Jonah. If you've got one of the Red Church Bibles, it would be great if you could find page 927 and keep your finger in the page there. Um, I'm, I'm going to start by doing something a little bit different. Um, so what I'd like you all to do, if you don't mind, is to smile and wave. And I'm going I'm to turn around and take a picture... Of all, can, can you see that? If you're all smile and wave, and I'm going to smile as well. <laughs> Look at that. Wow. Um, and I'm just going to, I'm just going to send that to Richard, and uh, hopefully. In a few seconds, you'll be able to see that up on the screen. There it goes. The internet. What an amazing thing. In recent years, while we wait for that, I've noticed more and more a new phenomena, a phenomenon, phenomena, called selfies. That, that's what we just did. Um, it's, look at that. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> that is amazing. What's this? Very triumphant there in the corner. Selfies. Um, you know what a selfie is now, don't you? When people take pictures of themselves. Um, this is the growing trend. Um, I suppose it's grown for two reasons. Number one, everyone has cameras, don't they, now, on their phones, iPads. And because we can access the internet almost anywhere, we can take a picture of ourselves and we can publish it almost immediately, like we just did. Most of my selfies have been mistakes. Most often when I get a new camera, I'm trying to figure out how it works. I accidentally take one of myself. I think I've got um, one here. <laughs> that is not meant to be a selfie. And uh, this happens to other people as well. I found this one on my laptop. Um, <laughs> this is Richard playing with my camera and accidentally taking a selfie of himself and Will. He looks like a little leprechaun in the corner there. <laughs> he just looks like a little sweet little... I can say that because he's not here. <laughs> I suppose people normally take selfies to show how nice they look. Um, or if they've been to a famous place, or maybe they've been seen by a famous celebrity, and they kind of say, can I have my picture taken with you? And then it immediately goes on Facebook. Or maybe it's just they've been doing something exciting and they wanted to take a little selfie of themselves doing something exciting, like preaching, a little selfie, put it up on Facebook. There's a whole internet genre of selfie fails where people try to take one but don't realise that there's a stupid reflection in the mirror behind them 
or somebody doing something stupid in the background and it's only when they publish them and someone points out, did you see what was going on in the background? Well, as we come to study the book of Jonah, the Old Testament, there's only four chapters, it's a small book here. I want you to think about this little book of Jonah as a selfie. Oh, that makes sense. This is a self-portrait. Jonah is taking a picture of his own life and publishing it, not on the internet, because they didn't have the internet when Jonah was alive. And he's not taking it with a camera. This is a pen picture that he's publishing and putting out there. We could almost subtitle this book, I think. I am Jonah. And this is my story. Or selfie. You'll know that this is a story that's embedded in our culture. I think almost everyone has heard of Jonah and the whale. You know the story. God tells Jonah to go to the great city of Nineveh in Assyria. Jonah thinks to himself, no chance. I'm not going to Nineveh. And he runs the other way. But he quickly discovers that it's stupid to run from the God who made everything and who is everywhere. But this God rescues him from himself through storms and seas and gives him a second chance. Jonah goes to Nineveh the second time, but he's really not happy because the whole city repents and God is very gracious to them. And Jonah can't stand it and sulks. It's like he would rather die than live with a God who forgives dirty pagans. He wants God to save and comfort him, but only on the basis that he deserves it. He doesn't want God to be kind to people that he thinks don't deserve it. And it's like Jonah's like, I knew this would happen. This is why I didn't want to go to Nineveh. I knew, God, that you would save them. We can't know for sure, but I I think this is a selfie for a couple of reasons. Firstly, he comes out of the story so badly that if anyone else wrote wrote it, it amounts to character assassination, doesn't it? And secondly, I think Jonah wrote it because he ultimately learned his lesson. And I think the reason he takes this selfie portrait that doesn't really show him in a great light is because he wants to pass on what he learned even though his selfie was an epic fail. I think the book is very unusual in this. Most of the prophet books in the Old Testament are teaching books. They're they're mostly basically sermons. Strong words proclaimed by prophets to kings, nations and individuals to call them to come and know the true God. But this little prophet book, Jonah, isn't really a sermon or a set of teachings, but it's just the story of one man's self-absorbed running, sinking, sulking and griping. But it doesn't just chronicle his sad journey I think the whole point of this book is that it deliberately contrasts him with his God. 
This story is about Jonah's heart and God's heart. That's the contrast that's really set before us in this story. This is a story of a man running away from God and God relentlessly chasing him. This is, as one writer puts it, a storied presentation of the Christian gospel. This is the gospel, the good news of the Christian message in a dramatic form and embedded in a story. So this story is, it's not just a selfie portrait to look at, but it's really a mirror for us to look in. There's irony here in that Jonah is meant to be one of the good guys. And and this selfie that he takes here is a reminder to us that we can, in our hearts, be running away from God, even in our obedience just as much as in our obvious disobedience. I want to think uh, with you about the idea of running and chasing, just by way of introduction. There there are so many angles we could take with this story, but I've entitled our series, Chased by Grace. Um, Many of you will know the influential American writer, Tim Keller, and uh, I've been greatly helped in my preparation by his insight that this, this is a story in the Old Testament that makes the Christian gospel concrete and visible. Sometimes when we're talking about things, we feel that's a bit abstract, don't we? And um, I, I think what Keller means is that we can see what things really look like when we see them in a story form. It becomes less abstract and more real to us. So, for example, Christians often talk, often talk about sin and grace And sometimes we might think to ourselves, what what do these words really mean? I think um, Jonah's story in the end teaches us that, first of all, we could define sin as running away from God. That's really the essence of sin. Running. That's a very simple concept, isn't it? Sin is running. Grace is another Bible word we mentioned. Grace is really in simple terms, God doing the chasing. And this is the good news of the gospel, isn't it? We are running from God, and God is always chasing after us. And I think this, uh, this is a simple idea that will help us a lot. I, I, I don't know about you, we often have ways, don't we, of defining ourselves. Um, what is my life about? Sometimes you might meet someone and the kind of questions we talk about, we define ourselves, don't we, in terms of maybe our career. It's interesting in this story that when Jonah's on the boat in the storm, the sailors pepper him with questions like a machine gun. Tell us who's responsible for making all this trouble for us. What do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? And the first thing he says as his answer to define himself is his nationality. I'm a Hebrew. That's how he sees himself. We might define ourselves in terms of our careers. I'm an engineer or a teacher or a decorator or a casino manager or a shopkeeper. We might define ourselves in terms of our relationships or family. I'm a dad or a mum or a brother or a sister. Sometimes we might define ourselves by our experiences. I'm an adrenaline junkie. 
I like jumping off bridges on the end of a bungee rope. And that's how I see myself. That's my life. Maybe we've suffered in some way and we would define ourselves by the difficult experiences that we've had. Maybe we define ourselves by our aspirations. I'm hoping that one day you can fill in the dot, dot, dot. The Bible defines human life as being precious. We are all made in God's image. But the Bible also tells us that in the end, underneath all the other definitions that we might give, we are basically defined by the fact that all of us are running. Every one of us, every one of us in this room are at heart, underneath all the other things that are going on, fugitives, running away from God. All of us, people on the run. Do you remember right back at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, our first parents, what was the first thing they did after disobeying the command that God had given to them? The first thing they did was to hide. And the Lord God, it says, came into the garden. They were ashamed. They ran away. God comes looking and calls out, Adam, where are you? They were running. God was chasing. There's another Old Testament prophet, um, one of the major prophets, a man called Isaiah. And he says this in uh, part of his book. Just thinking about human beings, he says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. What a description of human life. Like sheep running, going astray. Every one of us in different ways. I think the founders of every major religion that there's been in this world have said, I'll show you how you can find God. But Jesus says, I am God and I have come to find you. Very different order. We're doing the running and God in Jesus is doing the chasing. I, I want to suggest to you this afternoon that in terms of us being self-aware people, one of the most important questions we can ask ourselves is, in what particular ways am I running from God? We're all different in how we run. But the basic fact remains that we do. And if we don't understand that we're running, we'll never ever learn to stop running and turn around and return and be reconciled to God. The great truth of the Bible is that although we are runners, God is the great chaser. He loves people and he will go to extraordinary lengths to pursue us in his grace and kindness. And this is how the Bible portrays the whole of history. Human beings running from God in fear as if he was their enemy. And yet God running headlong towards his enemies because he loves them. And in this one brief story, God is seen pursuing Jonah as he runs. He's seen pursuing the sailors. They're running a different way. And he's seen pursuing this great city of Nineveh 
one of the main cities in the ancient nation of Assyria. So, our question today, as we begin looking at Jonah's selfie, is essentially this one. Why is it that Jonah runs? That's the question that we want to ask. Next week, we'll begin to think about how God chases after him. But for this week, I want to think a little bit with you about why it is that Jonah is sprinting off in the other direction. Okay? Simple? Why does Jonah run? If you've got your finger in the page here, just look with me at how Jonah's selfie begins. It says here in verse 1, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Amittai, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, sometimes I think we wonder often in our lives, what is God's will for me? Is that true? Uh, for, for our lives. And so, sometimes, maybe as believers in God, we might say something like, oh God, I wish you would tell me what to do so I can be really sure that it's you speaking. And I'll do it. I don't need a burning bush like Moses. I don't need a thunderbolt in the sky. <clears throat> I just want you to show me what your will is for my life. I wonder whether Jonah thought that sometimes, but there's nothing unclear or vague here in verse 1, is there? There's nothing mysterious or subtle about God's orders. Here is your mission, Jonah. Should you choose to accept it? Is that a line from a famous film? We don't know how God's words came to him, but they did come with power and clarity. Jonah, I want you to go. The first great surprise in this book comes in verse 3. Jonah is a prophet. He's one of the good guys. And when you read verse 1 and 2, you're expecting verse 3 to say, and so Jonah got up and he went to Nineveh. But the first great surprise in verse 3 is, but Jonah ran away from the Lord. He's already had some success as a prophet in Israel. We'll perhaps come back to that later in our series. Now God is sending him abroad to a foreign country, effectively, and, the, and verse 3 is full of like action words, verbs. Jonah ran away, headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. I think the sense we get is his just utter determination. I, I, I should have had a map really. Because if, if you picture where Israel is, the Mediterranean... God said to him, I want you to go to Nineveh. Nineveh's like over here somewhere. Jonah goes to the coast. You can imagine him skulking round the shipyard. Do you know if there's any boats leaving today? Yeah, I think there's one down here who's leaving at four o'clock this afternoon. Oh man, is there any space on it? I don't care, I'll, sit with, I'll sleep with the cargo. How much is it? I'll pay three times that. I just want a passage on this ship. And he sets off from Joppa and he goes in the diametric opposite direction to Tarshish, most Bible commentators I read believe that Tarshish was in southern Spain. 
So he's like sailing literally thousands of miles in this direction when God has said, I want you to go this way. You go, Jonah, go. He runs away and goes this way. Now, I don't think that Jonah, as a prophet, is theologically stupid. This man's a prophet, after all. He would know some of these Old Testament scriptures, wouldn't he? He's a preacher, for goodness sake. I think he would know, for example, Psalm 139. Let me read it to you. Verses 7, 8, 9 and 10. This is what the psalmist said. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. In other words, as a prophet, he knows that you can't run from the God who is everywhere. He knows that you can't escape the all-seeing eye. He is sure, theologically, that there is no place, ultimately, that is outside of God's presence. He is the supreme creator. Where can you go to hide from him? But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Maybe he thinks that he's just got to get away from Israel. If this is the place where God speaks to his prophets, maybe if I run away to the other side of the world, God's word won't come to me there. I think this is a man, even though he knows that he's been futile, he's trying to shut God out. This is Jonah's way of putting his fingers in his ears. He wants to get as far away from God's word and God's presence as he possibly can, even though he knows deep down it's irrational. I think Jonah gets some bad press. We can all too easily think, if that was me, I wouldn't have done that. I would have gone to Nineveh. I'm a good person. But after all, this, this is a tough excitement. Even God acknowledges it here. Nineveh was a great city. We'll come back to Nineveh. God also says that Nineveh was a wicked city. Jonah is thinking to himself, at best, they're going to laugh me out of town. At worst, they're going to flay me alive, put my head on a stick on a gate somewhere. Jonah ran away from the presence of the Lord. I want to suggest three reasons then. Um, very quickly, let's uh, rattle through these. Why did Jonah run? First of all, his faith in God was weak. Now, I, I need to just be clarifying that. I don't mean that he doesn't believe in God. I, I think actually the opposite is true. Jonah has a very, very deep faith in God. We'll see that in a minute. What, what I'm driving at is that Jonah doesn't feel that God is going about things in quite the right way. 
He is not trusting God to do the right thing. In other words, Jonah feels like he knows better and it's in that sense that I mean that his faith is weak. The first verse here makes me think of the military in a way. Like a sergeant major, God doesn't mess about. Jonah, on your feet, boy, go. That's the command. He doesn't have a committee. He doesn't put his arm around him and have a little counselling session. God's word comes to... Sometimes God is intimate with us, but there are times when his bare word of command comes cleanly, sharply, with the expectation that we'll do exactly what he asks us to do. Those of us who are parents know this. Um, There are times when, as a parent, you know... I have to be careful because my children are here, some of them. You know that you have the bigger picture. You ask your child to do something and there isn't time to mess about. There are two responses I've identified. My children will flame air live later and put my head on the stick. There's two responses I've identified. The first is the selective hearing one. You say it and you know you've said it loud enough. The neighbours across the road would have heard it. But there's not a peep. And then you say it again, and the child goes, what, 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 what did you say? I, I think the test, I've never been wise enough to this, I think the test should be that having said the first thing, what I should, is, should do is very quietly say, would you like some sweets? And just say, well, oh yeah, 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 I'll have some sweets. That maybe that would be a good way. The second is the big conversation. Oh, but there's this and that and I can't do what you wanted me to do because the world's going to end if I don't do this or do that. The big conversation is often, it's like a diversion. The real issue underneath is, I don't want to do what you're asking me to do. And this is true spiritually, isn't it? We often come across people who want to debate and that's fine in its place but sometimes the issue is not an intellectual one. Sometimes the issue isn't about proving this and that and the other. The issue underneath all the other issues is not an intellectual one, it's a moral one. I actually don't want to do what I know God wants me to do. So I'm going to avoid it. Jonah's tactic here is not to pretend that he's deaf or to have a big debate with God, he just puts his sprinting shoes on and runs the other way. That's his tactic. I'm I'm not hanging around here. I'm off. Bosh. I think when we boil it down, this comes down to trust. This is a big assignment for Jonah. But in the end, this is God speaking to him. And he has his reasons for asking Jonah to do this particular task. He knows the big picture. If God thinks that this is a good idea, then even if it looks suicidal, he must know what he's doing. And on this occasion here, God isn't wanting to rule by committee. He isn't even asking for an opinion. The word that comes to Jonah is not a suggestion to reflect upon, but a command to be obeyed. We've often thought about another Old Testament figure, Abraham, comes earlier in the Bible. A very similar word came to Abraham. God said to Abraham, I want you to go 
He didn't tell him where he was going. He didn't have all the answers. The issue for Abraham was, do I trust the character of the one who is asking me to go? And that's the issue that's always at stake, isn't it, with our obedience. The issue that's always at stake is our confidence in the character of the one who's commanding us. Is he trustworthy? Is he competent? Does he know what he's doing? And there are, there are effectively two ways to grab your coat, aren't there? When Abraham says, God, I'll get my coat, what he's really saying is, I don't know what you're doing in my life at the moment, God. But because I trust you and your character, I'm going to get my coat and I'm going to put my hand into your hand. I'm coming. When Jonah says, I'll get my coat, he's thinking, I know better than you, God. I don't really like the way you do things anyway. And I can run my life better than you. I'm getting my coat and I'm off in the other direction. So it was that way, wasn't it? Tarshish. Our obedience is always rooted in our confidence in the one who's commanding us. Listen, maybe for some of you, there are uncertainties. I wish God would show me more clearly what he wants me to do. We do long for guidance, don't we, on the big issues. But actually, God's word has come to us, often in simple ways, Sometimes we're fretting about where we should live. What God's wanting to talk to you about is how we should live. And the problem is that often when God's word comes to us, we look at it and we think, if I do that, it will make me unhappy. Or if I don't do the thing I want to do, my life will be incomplete and miserable. And in the end, what we're really saying is, God, I know best. You're not enough for me. I'm going to go my own way. That is the essence of running. Is God calling you to obey him in something? Have you been running headlong away from him? Perhaps there's something that you're afraid of trusting him in. You know that in the end, trusting God will work out for his glory and your good. Look at Jonah. The things he, were, the things he was afraid of were nowhere near as bad as what actually ended up happening to him when he ran. Facing fears with God is always better than running away from his presence and his word. As I'm getting older, I'm realizing more and more that the areas where I thought my faith was weak are the exact areas where my faith in me has been way too strong. It often isn't that I can't trust God enough. It's more that I haven't learned yet not to trust myself too much. Does that make sense? I wonder this afternoon if there's something that God is touching your heart with and it's time for you to stop running 
and start trusting him. Why did Jonah run? Well, first of all, it was his lack of confidence in God's character, his weak faith. Secondly, I want to suggest if his faith in God was weak, his pride in himself was very strong. In chapter 1, we are given no clue as to why Jonah runs away. That's part of the beauty of the way he writes the story. He, he runs, but we don't really know why. Is he frightened? Is he overwhelmed by the size of the task? Well, I, normally when I read a book, I don't go to the last page because it spoils the end of the story. It spoils it if you know the end. But this time, we do need to go to the last page. Just turn with me to Jonah chapter 4. If there's no clue in chapter 1, Jonah himself tells us why he ran in chapter 4. After the Ninevites repent and God relents from his threat of judgment, Jonah goes outside the city and has a massive strop. Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. It's Jonah's selfie. There are times in history when people become Christians in large numbers. Imagine you're in a place where revival is breaking out and you just sit in the corner with your head in your hands sulking. I just knew it. I knew it. I knew that God would forgive them. I absolutely hate it. Imagine that. But that's Jonah. He says himself, the reason he ran away wasn't because he was afraid of failure. He ran away because he was afraid of being successful. The thing that made him run and run quick and desperately was because he didn't want God to save who he thought were the dirty pagans outside. In fact, at the end he says, I would rather die than witness this injustice. How can you forgive them, God? They're our enemies. These people are our bullies. You've sent me there to preach them. The reason I didn't want to go is because I knew, I knew it. You'd forgive them. What he's really saying is, God, if this is what you're like, I can't live with you. I don't want to be associated with you. I can't be in the same room as you. You make me sick, God. You're so kind. Oh, I hate it. That's, that's Jonah's. I want to die. This is God's prophet. He's just preached and seen revival break out and now he's so angry he wants to die. What on earth is going on? What a selfie. It's an epic fail. Let's dig a little deeper and just peel some layers back. I, I think the thing that cripples Jonah here is his sense of nationalistic pride. 
Remember what the shout, who are you? Where are you from? What's your, I'm a Hebrew. I'm a Hebrew. That was his, and God owes me. I am one of his privileged people. I'm in God's team. And I deserve to be treated well by God. Looked after. Given grace. Those dirty pagans over there, they are beyond the pale. But me, I'm in God's team. That is what we might call self-righteousness, isn't it? I read a great definition this week of self-righteousness. Just get this. Self-righteousness is the thing that consigns others to a fate that it counts itself entitled to escape. You get that? Self-righteousness is that thing that consigns others to a fate that it counts itself entitled to escape. I don't deserve God's judgment, but those dirty pagans do. It's a form of superiority. I want to sow a seed here for you to think about. Maybe you can take this away this week and just reflect on this. The truth is that when we take God out of the picture, we will always need to find our significance in something else. Part of our condition as humans is that we always have to find someone we can be superior to. Otherwise, life loses its meaning for us. For some people, it will be racism. I am glad I am this nationality and pity those poor people from dot, dot, dot. For others, it might be their sense of enlightenment. Oddly, Ian was reminding me of a quote from uh, one of the Austin Powers movies this week. I looked it up. He said, said, check it. There's only two things I hate in this world. People who are intolerant of other people's cultures and the Dutch. That's a great quote. If you didn't get it, ask me afterwards. You have to think about it. This, This is the person who says, I am so pleased that I'm above this kind of bigotry. I'm more sensible and broad-minded than that. And I despise those narrow-minded bigots over there. This week, um, the TV personality, Graham Norton, has been in the news. I don't know if you saw this. He's been very cross this week. Um, There are some representatives of a group supporting traditional marriage who appeared on TV in Ireland. And the TV presenter, I think, labelled them as being homophobic. And so they sued the TV station and said, you've no right to say that we're homophobic. We're just supporting traditional marriage. We don't hate people who are gay. And this TV station accepted the charge and settled by paying this group €85,000 to settle the case. Graham Norton said this week that he felt this was, I quote, moronic. And this this is what he said. This tiny minority can yell all they want, but it's over. It's all done. 
This Iona Institute and people like that are like rats trapped in the corner of a barn. They know the jig is up. That's why they're screaming so loud. And he then joked that uh, having gay marriage opponents was good because they drag everyone towards the centre. You hear their opinions and suddenly you're a little bit more tolerant because you don't want to be them. (laughs) The irony, the irony. Whatever you think about the issues involved... That sounds to me like replacing one perceived superiority with another. I'm enlightened. These idiots are not. You get that? For some, it will be their education. I have the ability to appreciate high culture. Things that are aesthetically pleasing give me great satisfaction. Not like those savages over there who are addicted to curry and love the X Factor. What planet are they on? That's, you see, see what goes on? I, I'm above all that. I live in a different realm. These people. Riff-raff. Superiority, you see. Bizarrely, these things can work in reverse. For some, it might be their sense of suffering. Oh, in my life, I have suffered so much. And this makes me such a deep and meaningful person. Not many people have experienced the pain that I've been through and I am rich in my ability to sympathise with others because I've been through the mill. Not like those careless, thoughtless people over there. Even in our suffering, we can find a way of being superior over other people. My point is, we're always looking for the things that make us feel special And inevitably, it leads to, I'm better than this group. And religious superiority is a part of that. I am a good moral person. Not like those people. I deserve God's grace, but they don't. This is part of the running that we do. We run from God to pursue our significance in religion. How ironic is that? Even religion can be a form of running if we're using it to create superiority over others. The question for us is, what are the areas in our lives that we pursue in order to feel superior? Whatever it is for you, it could be anything. Whatever it is, it's like a little substitute God for you. It is what you treasure and aspire to, to gain well-being. If it works for you, it will make you feel nice. If it doesn't, you'll feel devastated and angry. And yet the Christian gospel cuts through. It, It kind of destroys the categories. The truth is that you are more fallen than you think you are. And yet, at the same time, you are more loved than you think you are. The gospel says that we are all fugitives, sinners who need a saviour. And the fact that Jesus has come in the flesh to save us from our sins means that I can never be superior and that I never need despair. God owes me nothing. I've been running from him 
And yet, he gives me everything. Here's another thing, though. Self-righteousness will always do two things. Number one, it will block God's grace coming into your life. You can't receive God's grace if you cling to the hope that you are your own saviour. If you're looking for your significance somewhere else, God's grace can't flow. Tim Keller tells the brilliant illustration of a man trying to give him a 30 million pound diamond and he was really embarrassed. He said, I just can't pay. And he gets his wallet out and he tries to give him 30 quid. 30 quid? It insults the giver. It's an embarrassment. But that's what we're like with God. God wants to give us everything and we go, can I just give you a tenner? Because we want to trust ourselves instead of relying wholly on his grace. If you want to pay for it in some way, in some mysterious way, you can't have it then. Unless you receive God's grace as a gift and let him have the glory of giving, it will block grace. You can't earn it. You have to receive it. The second thing self-righteousness does is that it always kills our love for other people. And because here's the deal. Once you understand that you're a fugitive and that Jesus has chased you down to save you, you can never ever look at anyone ever again and say that they're beyond the pale. Rather you'll say, if God loves me and has saved me, he can love anyone. And your love can flow. There's no superiority in that. This is the major point of Jonah's epic fail selfie. He loved himself. He wanted to be his own saviour. He trusted his ethnicity and his religious credentials rather than trusting God. It prevented him from receiving grace and it made him angry when he saw God giving grace to others. His pride was slowly strangling him. Very quickly, the last point, we won't dwell on this. I don't need that. Why does John run? His faith in God was weak. His pride in himself was strong. Thirdly, he had plenty of opportunity. Very quickly. I just want to close by saying this. There will always be a ship to Tarshish. When we set our hearts to run, there will always be a ship. If your heart is set on lust, you will always find things for your eyes to dwell on. If you are set on being angry, you will always find something nearby to throw. If you're set on running away from God, there will always be a ship waiting to take you to your Tarshish. One of the odd and twisted things is that we can even begin to justify our behavior on the basis that if it was wrong, God would have stopped me. Imagine Jonah relaxing in his cabin. Well, do you know, if God really wanted me to go to Nineveh, I'm sure he could have miraculously closed this port down. Maybe the captain would have fell ill. Maybe the ship would have broken. Maybe there'd be no room. Maybe, after all, God isn't that serious about me going to Nineveh. If he was... Surely he would have stopped me from running away. I think it's okay, you know. 
I think I'll just sleep now. Storm's over. Oh man, Jonah, you've no idea that it's only just beginning. We need to make sure in our lives that we don't mistake opportunity for permission. Jonah has given us his selfie here so that we can learn from his experience just how great God's grace is. As far as Jonah tried to run, God ran faster and further. God was always one step ahead of him, longing to forgive and to change him. God is the great chaser. Jesus runs towards his enemies, not away from them. He knows who we are. He knows what we've done. And he longs to forgive and reconcile us to himself. Jesus, the whole point of him coming was so that he could run right into the storm of God's anger at the cross so that we could be free from it. Is your faith or confidence in God's word weak? Do you feel that obeying God will cost you too much? Or are you perhaps trying to be your own saviour, trusting something other than Jesus to help you feel secure? Maybe today is the day that you stop running and listen to God. Maybe today is the day that you come with empty hands, not to do a deal with God because you feel like he owes you something, but simply to receive the life that Christ longs to give to you. Amen.